Hi guys, my name is Frank Chaparro, Senior Correspondent at The Block. You might know me as Frankie Scoops or Fintech Frank, but hopefully now you'll get to know me as the host of The Block's new podcast called The Scoop, made especially for decision makers and thrill seekers in the crypto market. Each week, I, along with one of my cohorts here at The Block, will talk with CEOs, innovators, and builders across the crypto market. Coinless president Andy Bromberg has witnessed numerous cycles of the token sale market, from the ICO boom in 2017 to the short-lived STO mania the next year. Today, Coinless continues to offer its platform for firms to conduct token sales for institutional investors, recently facilitating crypto project Algorand's $60 million offering. It was one of the largest in recent memory. Bromberg joined the scoop to discuss how the surge in Bitcoin's price has impacted the broader market for token sales, how Coinless strategy has changed since 2017, and why the once-hyped STO market never took off. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the Block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you for tuning in to The Scoop, the block's podcast for decision makers and thrill seekers. We have in studio, not live as per usual, Andy Bromberg. He's the president of CoinList. Andy is here with me alongside my colleague, Ryan Todd. We're going to be diving into a lot of different things here. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. So as we were talking about before we turned on the mics, your company is very interesting in, in that it's sort of experienced, you know, it grew out of the ICO wave uh, facilitating Filecoin, which was a massive multi-billion dollar or uh, multi-hundred million dollar sale. Um, and, and that's what you guys are doing now is conducting these, these token sales. So I'd be interested in sort of having you walk us through what it's been like to go from the crazy times of 2017 to now and how, how that's changed the business. Yeah, those times uh, certainly were crazy. I think this is just going to be a fact of working in the crypto industry for a long time that it is early, it is cyclical, it is volatile. Um, and, and we have to run our business with those assumptions that that's going to be true. And so what we saw in 2017 when Coinless started was an amazing opportunity. 
there were all these issuers out there going to run token sales, and none of them really had the logistics set up to run a token sale. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of things you need to do there from handling compliance, so that's the KYC and anti-money laundering, investor accreditation, uh, to transaction processing, actually handling the money coming in, to signing documents, to managing those investors and understanding what actually is going on with them. It's a lot of infrastructure to build, and especially a lot of infrastructure to build for a one-time event. All these token issuers were going to run one token sale and then walk away. And so uh, we originally started as a collaboration between Protocol Labs, who built Filecoin and AngelList, uh, the online fundraising platform. And they built CoinList, the first version of it, just to run the Filecoin token sale. And in that process, they had that realization that every token issuer was going to need to do that. And so they said, let's spin this out. So we spun out uh, as a new independent entity to do exactly that, to provide these services to token issuers. Uh, and that's when I and the other founders came in uh, to really start this as a new company. And what we saw right away was, this is a great opportunity. Let's seize it. Let's help with the highest quality token sales that we can help with. Let's provide a bunch of services to all these issuers that desperately need services. But let's also not assume that the way the industry is today is the way it's going to be in one month or six months or a year or five years. Uh, and, and that, I think, is a fact of running a crypto business in any way. The industry changes so quickly. Token sales didn't even really exist more than a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so the idea of building a business forever around that uh, seems a little bit silly. So we started there and, uh, and we've expanded out in terms of the products that we offer and the services that we provide. But it's all still around this foundational goal of helping the world's best digital asset companies. And that started with helping them with their capital formation efforts, raising money and, and going through that process. Um, and it's since expanded to helping them build communities and manage developers uh, and a whole bunch of other things coming down the pipeline mm -hmm. too. Uh, but we just really want to set that North Star of helping these digital asset companies succeed. And in 2017, that meant helping them with their fundraising processes. Uh, and today that means uh, sometimes something very different. When Back then though, I mean, the, the, the term that I remember being used was ICO. Did you... Did you at the at that point realize that there was a difference between the companies that you'd be servicing uh, versus you know the tr the classic idea of what an initial coin offering is or initial public offering IPO yeah or an IPO yeah. like the terminology I think has always been a little bit uh, like I guess the question space. is yeah. when when a company comes to you and I guess this is the the, the question and they want to do a token sale through CoinList. How do you determine whether or not it's an it's a an ICO, which I guess would be a token sale that's an unregistered security, or the launch of a project through a token offering? Like, how do you distinguish between those those two things? Yeah, so I think uh, in terms of terminology, it's it's just so scattered in this space, and so a lot of the teams that we've worked with running highly compliant, thoughtfully structured token sales have referred to them as ICOs. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people, the term ICO just means we're offering these tokens and, and selling them. It's, a, it's an initial coin offering. And maybe it's structured as a SAFT or something else. But ultimately, the intention is that the investors are going to get tokens, coins at the end of the process. And so they call it an ICO. And, and that's what a lot of people use that terminology for. We tend to prefer the term token sale. It's just mm -hmm. a little bit more generic and speaks to this idea that, yeah, we're just selling tokens. doesn't mm -hmm. have some of the connotations of, yeah, this ICO terminology sure. that often does mean unregistered, non-exempt uh, securities. Offers. And when they come to you, there are these different methods by which you can do the, the token sale through a SAF, through, through Reg D. I mean, we've seen um, BlockSack recently come out and say that they're going to issue tokens via a Reg A 
where does Coinless sit in helping companies decide which regulatory avenue? And I wonder if it would be possible for them to launch in a specific region without any U.S. Um, regulatory framework around their sale. Is that is that part of the process that you guys help? That's right. So we we don't actually structure these deals, but we have seen now a lot of them, thousands of them have come through our doors and, and talked to us. Uh, and so we've seen a lot of different ways that these are these are operated. And so we can offer advice on on what works and what doesn't. Uh, we have certainly run uh, sales of SAFTs exempted through Reg D. Um, we have helped with Reg A uh, with a Reg A offering. We've helped with totally non-U.S. offerings, so ones that don't even touch U.S. investors at all or are not a U.S. company. Um, and it's really just a matter of figuring out what process fits that issuer's needs the best. Sometimes uh, they just don't care about getting U.S. investors, and so they can remove the U.S. from the equation and not worry about some of that. Sometimes they care about getting unaccredited investors in the U.S., and so you are likely to go the Reg A route or the Reg CF route. Sometimes you want big dollar accredited investors, and so the Reg D route is the right way to go. Um, and it's it's really just a matter of matching needs to to the possible uh, processes. You mentioned you don't structure the deals uh, yourself. Who who structures them? Uh, the issuer always does. Yeah, uh, okay, cool. working with their legal counsel. Yeah. So the uh, issuer okay. will structure the deal how they see fit, and then you guys provide the the platform for that token sale to occur. That's exactly right. Yeah, we're we're a technical services platform. We help with all those aspects I was mentioning earlier, from compliance to processing the transactions, doing all of that. Um, and, uh, and we also, of course, offer advice and, uh, and informal counsel because we've seen a lot of these deals. We want to help these issuers be successful, but you've just got to follow within these, these guidelines around what you're actually mm -hmm, allowed to mm -hmm, do. Mm -hmm. Because there are certain contexts under which, you know, providing certain advice might be broker dealer. That's related. right. Yeah. A lot of these assets are treated as securities and the securities industry is, is highly regulated and you have to be very careful about what exactly you're doing there. Yeah. That's interesting. I think another thing that people often conflate what you guys do is 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 that you guys are a security a security token platform. And that's something that I think you guys shy away from just because um, that's not necessarily what some of these deals could be. Um, and again, back to your point, you want to provide the broader umbrella of what what these might be designated as. We talked about security tokens before we jumped on. My impression is, you know, it's not 2018 where it was the big buzzword. Everyone was thinking about how we could tokenize everything. Um, does that, you know, folks who wanted to, you know, tokenize real estate or tokenize, you know, different, different um, uh, assets, art maybe, is that impacting your business? What's, what's your view yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this. I think it's, it's an important topic, and it again goes back to this terminology issue that the industry struggles with. Um, just to set out a definition here, our definition of security tokens, which you were just referencing, is that a security token is a token that uh, is sold as a security and also will always be a security. So, for example, Filecoin, whose token sale we helped with, they sold SAFTs, which mm -hmm. were securities, representing future ownership of Filecoin. And at some point, the intention is that those investors are going to get Filecoin and Filecoin is going to be a non-security. So even though Filecoin sold or Protocol Labs sold those SAFTs as securities, we don't see that as a security token offering because the intention is that the tokens eventually will not be securities. So when we talk about security tokens, we're talking about, like you referenced, things like real estate-backed tokens or other kind of investment-backed tokens where the, the token itself will always be a security. In 2018, I th think we saw a lot of buzz around this 
Uh, frankly, because people were really searching for the next big thing. The 2017 hype wave died down around more traditional token sales, if you can call them that. And all of a sudden, people needed something to grab onto. And this narrative started developing around the tokenization of everything. And that got really hot and it got a lot of attention. My view still is that we will see more and more assets becoming tokenized over time and that that narrative will play out. I just think it's way further out than people are giving it credit for uh, at that time. So in terms of how it's impacted our business, we didn't build around that. We've always built around serving whatever the market needs are at that time. We yeah. did not see sufficient demand in 2018 for these asset-backed tokens, and so we didn't So back then, like in 2018, so it's interesting because I feel like you guys probably went through phases where 2017, you had a lot of the ICO team projects come to you. Hey, I might be interested in, in doing a token sale through you guys. Then maybe 2018, you had, you know, maybe we saw with Harbor's deal that went kaput with the college door. Maybe you had some real estate deals coming to you and saying, Hey, we're thinking about doing a token sale. Um, was that, and now, and now it's 2019, you might be seeing a different group, but is that, how did that transition? Um, did, did you see 2018 some folks come to you to structure or rather facilitate? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, we saw a lot of that in 2018. Um, and, uh, and ultimately we're looking at these deals and we have to vet them, right. And make sure that we think they're fit to be run on our platform. We have a whole set of criteria and a process we go through there for mm. making those decisions. We can talk about that. But ultimately, if there's not demand in the market for those issuances, they're just not going to be successful issuances. And so you, it doesn't make as much sense to work with them. Yeah. And we were just seeing... And it was the gap. You were, you, you've talked about the gap between crypto folks who know nothing about, for instance, real estate and the real estate folks who have no interest in Tokenized tokenizing. Products. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think the uh, the the view is uh, that there are two possible investors. There are these real estate investors that could invest in a tokenized asset, but they don't want to right now. Because yeah, tokens why not? Are let's scary. let's dig into that. Yeah. Like, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of folks, possibly on both sides. Why isn't the appetite there? If we've hear, we've heard all these things about, you know, the the problem of of, of a liquidity in some of these markets, the benefits that um, tokenization would have, in, in as much as you know, it would it would uh, facilitate easier trading of some of these things that are, you know, or or add more transparency to some of these markets that are opaque. Um, Unbundling a REIT, so you can yeah. like select, be more selective on what's inside of that type of product. Mm -hmm. Right. So there mm -hmm. are benefits here, but fungibility. Fungibility. Well, <laughs> to the to the question, I think, I think the if I'm a real estate investor, like a traditional real estate investor, and someone puts a token tokenized real estate deal in front of me, I'm likely a pass on that. And the reason I'm a pass is that. First of all, there are a lot of deals out there in the world and a lot of deals where I understand exactly how they're structured, all the implications of the instruments that are being used, who's offering it, all these different pieces. And when I look at this tokenized deal, there's just an element of uncertainty because I've read these headlines about tokens and Bitcoin and theft and all these negative things. And at the same time, it's just a different new structure. And I might be looking at it and saying, listen, this is interesting. I hear you on the benefits, right? The the fractionalization, the composability, all these pieces. But at the end of the day, I've got other deals that I understand much more easily that I think are going to get me great returns. I'm investing in those deals. So getting over the hump there on going from, you know, letting people, uh, giving people an incentive to get into these deals, that I think is the hardest piece there. I think, it, again, it will happen at some point. But right now, there's just, it's uncertainty. It's not actually to be clear that there is anything bad about the tokenized deals. 
In fact, I would argue that they're better in a lot of ways than the non-tokenized deals, but there's just this element of uncertainty for investors that are not used to investing in tokens. I guess to that point, uh, you mentioned due diligence on these deals. Do you offer any assurances or like, I guess even like insurance almost on like whatever's listed on the platform? Yeah, we don't. So, so again, we're just a technical services platform for running right. the sale. So we vet the things uh, that are on there, but we don't perform formal investment right. due diligence or anything like that. Um, for us, it's much more a matter of of making sure that the product is something that our customers, uh, are, you know, our users on the platform would, would be interested in buying potentially. Um, in the same way that any kind of online store would vet products before putting them up there, that's that's what we're doing um, to, to make sure there's a fit with our customer base. Mm -hmm. And so what happens once you the, the token sale commences, um, who plays a role in getting that onto an exchange or marketplace? Is that you guys? Is it the project themselves? Yeah, it's generally the project. We're, of course, always happy to help with things like that, make introductions and, and do all of that. I think uh, at the same time, a lot of the projects we've run are still actually illiquid. Yeah. Right? Because what we often do is let people invest in these sales at a really early date, again, through a SAFT or some similar instrument before the token is actually live. So there's no trading on exchanges for these things because mm -hmm. they're still illiquid. The team's still developing the mm -hmm. project. And at some point, it will launch for some of them very soon. And at that point, then it's an effort to get them on exchanges and allow for more liquidity and, and a more open market. Um, but a lot of the time we run these sales and then investors, and they, they know this going in, of course, are locked up for quite a while uh, mm -hmm. as the project's developed. And you're trading that, that downside, the illiquidity, for the potential upside of getting in really early on a really high quality deal. That's interesting. What, so let's, let's then go to, let's fast forward to today. I think we spoke in March. You said the pipeline was relatively strong. You were expecting a handful of deals to go through. We saw Algorand go through. Um, must have been, a, it was kind of during, right around when Facebook, Libra announced, kind of took some of the limelight out of that. But still went very well. It's, very yeah, it was, it was a strong, it was a strong deal. What, um, what what does the environment look like now? What does the deal pipeline look like? And then maybe we could talk about Algorand and, and what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, yeah I was going to say it's it's uh, it's still very strong, perhaps even stronger than it was then. I think in a large part due to Algorand, um, and I I don't think Algorand has impacted our pipeline uh, as much because of CoinList running the Algorand token sale, but just because the Algorand token sale really broke the ice on a pretty long period of token projects not being able to raise substantial mm -hmm. amounts of money. And it's great that we helped facilitate that, and and you, they we were the platform they ran their their auction on, and so a lot of people are coming to us as a result. But a lot of token projects were sitting back on their heels a little bit, saying we're going to run a token sale at some point, but this market's really uncertain. It's not great. We should wait it out a little bit. And Algorand shattered that with uh, you know a sixty million dollar first auction that they ran, and I think that made a lot of projects think that now might be the time to go and, and run a sale. So we're in discussions with with a lot of great projects on exactly that. What do you think the difference was between Algorand and then Ocean missing the mark and going off to do an IEO? Was there something about Algorand that was a, set up a stronger foundation for them to, to raise that much money, or was it the environment? I, I, it's so hard to say with these things because there's so many factors at play, right? When you go out to, to do a fundraise, there's not a single effort. I think a lot of it is the environment. The environment has to be right. This is such a momentum-driven industry, and so you have to hit it right on the nose. But it's also really important that you know the tech is there, the team is there, the product's there, the, the team is actually fundraised really effectively um, and, uh, and pushed forward there. And even you know if you look at the orders of magnitude of those two offerings, the Algorand offering certainly 
was in part targeted towards more institutional investors able to write big checks, the Ocean offering was not. Mm-hmm. They were going for a much more kind of broadly distributed, smaller size set of investments. And so even that, those are two separate environments, the institutional environment and the retail environment. Um, and uh, and so I think, you know, Algorand was, was very successful because of the team and the product and the market um, and, and how everything came together at the right time in addition to their efforts around fundraising from those institutional partners. That's interesting. So with Ocean going then off to do an IEO to raise more money, is is does that mean our IEO platforms we've we've seen a bunch of them spring up in the past couple months since at least the beginning of the year are they complementary to what you do are they in competition to what you do how do you view that development as it pertains to your business yeah we we see that as as complementary um an analogy i i use a lot i think there's been a lot of talk of how ICOs or token sales are similar to IPOs on the traditional equities markets and I really don't see that because most token sales, especially the ones that we've run, are for assets that are still illiquid. So mm-hmm. an IPO happens when a stock goes liquid and starts trading on a secondary exchange. Most token sales that we've worked with don't do that. Now, on the other hand, an IEO is exactly that. The mm-hmm. IEOs happen when the token is going live and liquid on exchanges. It's an initial exchange offering. And so what, what we're, we see is that the token sales that we have run historically have been much more like private fundraising before a company goes public. And then at some point, there's an IPO, or in this case, an IEO, and the, the token or the equity goes live and starts trading liquidly on the secondary markets. And so we see it as a very natural thing that a lot of teams could run a token sale with CoinList early on for investors to get involved at the early stages. And then when they're ready to go live, run an IEO and actually go go liquid and live there. Uh, so we see it as a, as a complimentary service. Yeah, but it matters where you go, right? I mean, we, we've we've got a story. I don't think it came out yet, but there was this one shoddy, shady, shady and shoddy exchange in, I don't even know where they're based, but they're, they're either Russian or Chinese. I, this is going to be, but, be true every yeah. single, every time there is a innovation in the crypto space around fundraising or anything else, you see a few kind of shining oh, stars. You see the echoes of 2017. So yeah. with this one in particular, uh, a project that we spoke to said that they, you know, the, the company or rather the exchange platform said they raised two something odd million dollars on the platform when they had actually only raised 3000 or something like, egreg- wow. like actually egregious. And it's, it's just funny to me. You see the echoes of what was going on in 2017 um, it's going to be know. the exact same story. And it happened with uh, exchanges themselves and secondary trading platforms when all these first ICO tokens started to become liquid. There were really good exchanges and really bad exchanges and scammy exchanges. And now it's happening with IEO platforms. And it's going to happen in the next wave to whatever that ends up being. Um, so what, what we always say to, to issuers is you, you got to do your diligence. You may think these, these uh, platforms are vetting you. You've got to be vetting them. And making sure that you're working with partners that are representing your brand well, because you can get in a lot of trouble if you work with the wrong people. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You have a question? Uh, yeah, you mentioned earlier earlier on uh, that you know in 2017 there's a lot of these other competing uh, providers, platforms, issuers, all that stuff. What's really been the reason why you guys are still around and just had a successful Algorand launch? Um, nine million dollar, nine million dollars of runway. Well, I think I think the uh, the reason we're still yeah there may be practical reasons why we're still around, but uh, <laughs> the more existential reasons are um, around a couple of things. One, you know, I, I 
selfishly would, would just uh, just praise our team's ability to execute in a space that's full of people that have really struggled to execute. Um, and so that's obviously a critical component, just making this happen day How in, day out. How many of there are you? Uh, there's about 25 of us. Okay, 25 yeah. folks. Um, and, and I think the, the second piece is we've consistently kept our bar really high for who we work with. And so we easily, in 2017, could have gone for the momentary cash grab, worked with every single token sale out there, just sprayed and prayed and worked with low-quality issuers. And we sat back and said, listen, that could be a great revenue event for us for the next three months, but this space is going to change, and the people that are going to survive and stand strong are the ones that are going to work with the best issuers. And so we've kept our bar really high, and that stayed strong through the heights of 2017, the lows of 2018, and now as, as the market's coming back maybe with Algorand and others, um, you just have to stay focused on working with the best people. That's the way to build a long-term business. And, uh, and so that focus plus just going out and executing every day and providing the service that we do to uh, our customers is, I think, what's let us uh, you know, stay around. Have you seen any changes in issuer trends, like who these actual issuers are, where they're coming from geographically? Are they still the same players? Yeah, there's, how's that? constantly changing right and i think uh a lot of that is just again uh, i'm a broken record on this early stage industry everyone's sorting out how things should work and what the norms are going to be um so you can even look at kind of the the trends within what these issuers are doing at one point there were a ton of layer one protocols building this kind of base layers and then that settled down a little bit well everyone you know looked back and said well let's let that first batch sort themselves out and we saw more application focused uh token sales and so we see these cycles at the same time, absolutely geographic cycles as the various regional markets go up and down, you know, highly correlated with the global market, but not 100% correlation. And so there have been times when we've gotten tons of Asian projects coming in or tons of European projects or tons of US projects. And, uh, and it's just a matter of, of keeping an eye on those trends, trying to be ahead of them. Uh, and I think recently uh, what we've seen is, uh, actually the last thing I'd mention there is obviously just the number of projects coming in our door has changed massively, right? In 2017, it was a never-ending deluge, mostly of really low-quality projects. Right. And then we kind of, into 2018, uh, saw the same number of high-quality projects coming in, but way fewer low-quality ones because the market stopped being so good. And now we're seeing a, a kind of uptick again in, in overall numbers. Um, and, uh, and there's just always going to be a, a cycle there for, for projects coming in our door. It's kind of sounds like, I feel like, and we've, we've talked, you know, we've known each other since 2017, and we, we have frequent conversations. And every time I feel like I, t- I talk to you, Andy, it feels like I'm talking to my friend, John Tuttle, head of listings at NYSE or Nelson Griggs, the head of yeah. listings at NASDAQ. When we talk about the deal flow pipeline and what issuers are looking for, why and why not folks are coming to market, it's not too different from what drives trends in the IPO market. Um, what What I'm curious to know is, when we talk about when when I when I would cover that market at Business Insider before the block, the question was so what's what's the competition between NYSE and Nasdaq? Um, it's not really clear who you guys are competing with. I think because of all these different terms, and when you are fighting for deals, who are you fighting with, and how do you, you know? present that value proposition for why they should bring that deal to CoinList. Yeah, you know, at the at the risk of of sounding like a weaselly answer here, the biggest competition is always the issuer just doing it themselves. 
right? And this was the same thing in oh, 2017. Gosh. This was exactly the question that was out there. Are these issuers all going to run their own token sales with their own infrastructure and maybe cobble together some different service providers? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Yeah. Why, do, why don't these, I mean, if they can figure out how to build, right, these complex systems. It's right. too much of a headache. And here's a company that can, that's proven they can do it. It's all a right. huge headache. You get economies of scale from doing a lot of them. And even more than that, a unified, seamless, well-tested experience for, for these projects. This is often up to this point, the most important moment in their entire life cycle, the minute their sale goes live. Right. And this is a funnel where you don't want to fuck that up. You don't want to. Yeah. And, and it, every single dollar that comes in is meaningful to the issuer. You need that funnel to be incredibly smooth. You need to get as many people through it as possible. Mm -hmm. You need it to feel like a unified experience. Uh, and so that's what we do, right? Cause we've spent a couple of years just doing that and building that with a whole team of people and going through a ton of these sales and we get better every time. So, for these projects, could they do it themselves? They could cobble it together. What are the costs? I don't know. It varies project to project. But if you think you're going to have a successful offering, it is almost certainly worth the money to go with a dedicated provider to make that happen. What about the other side of the funnel too? Do you do you pitch that you have this investor base that's comfortable using your platform to fund? Is that another? Yeah, that's, that's not so much for us. I think okay. one of the biggest pitches that is meaningful is that uh, you know, people trust CoinList. Mm. Again, we've kept a very high bar for projects we've worked with, and so uh, in a similar way, you know, I almost think of it like when you go to uh, when you go to an e-commerce site, right? And they've got like badges of trust on there, or like you know, a, an SSL certificate, all the basic stuff that gives the consumer more faith in what they're buying that it's real, that it's good, um, authentic, and so they go through that transaction with a much higher uh, you know conversion rate. And, and for us, we'd like to think that that's the same. We obviously don't have data on the same sales running on other platforms, but um, there's trust in our platform, in our name, in the quality of service that we provide. And so we'd like to think that, uh, and it seems to be true, that investors uh, are more likely to convert in mm -hmm. a sale happening on CoinList uh, going through that process. And the last thing I'll mention there is that there are also uh, very tangible benefits. Because in certain cases, if you have verified with CoinList before for something like KYC, which is often a pretty uh, painful process going through KYC, submitting photos of your documentation, passports, licenses, all of that. Oftentimes, if you've done that before with CoinList, you don't have to do it again. So if you participated in one offering and then you want to go participate in another, it's much easier. And that is a huge friction point, making me upload my passport photo and go through that verification. So if we can skip that for people because we've already done it for that individual investor, that's a higher conversion rate right there. Part of, um, you know, we, we reported... Um, back in February that you guys, we, we've talked about the issuer relationship, but on the other side, the investor relationship, um, aside from the, the trust factor being there, uh, you guys are no longer providing any sort of investment advice through your IRA. Um, walk us through the thinking of, of, of putting that on the shelf and not engaging directly to the same degree with investors. Was it the result of regulatory uh, the lack of regulatory clarity expense or something else yeah so so for context we had set up what's called a registered investment advisor entity and uh, our the investors on the platform were clients of that entity um, and what we would do is we would run the deals through this entity so we were saying to the investors here's some investment advice We've looked at this deal. It's non-discretionary so choose whether or not you want to invest but we've looked at this deal here's a bunch of data on it. Do you want to invest? And if so, go through this flow, right? And we would charge the investors a fee for making that investment, a management fee on, on their 
uh, investment going in. Um, and this was an interesting model. Uh, and, and we did this because we initially had this thesis that it would be better to be able to charge this kind of percentage-based management fee to the investors. Uh, and ultimately, what we realized is, and this is, again, part of the, the whole idea of being flexible in this space and adapting to where the market's going, because nobody knows where the market is going to be with absolute certainty mm -hmm. in six or nine months. We realized that actually issuers were just fine paying us for our services. We didn't need to make it free for the issuers. Investors didn't really like paying us because for them, they're already writing a check, right? They're investing in this project. They're writing a check and locking it up for you know, a year or so or however long it is for thousands of dollars, if not more. Nobody really wants to add additional fees to that. And then on top of that, running this regulated entity was a lot of work. And, uh, and it's because we were doing it right, but it meant that there were a whole bunch of operational burdens on us in running this registered investment advisor. And so ultimately, we did a bunch of customer research. We talked to our users, investors, and issuers and came to the conclusion that uh, this would be much easier as a pure technical services platform where we provide services to the issuer. They pay us for those services. So previously, the, the issuers didn't pay. That's right. So now the investors they, paid. is it the same economics? It's different economics. We charge, you know, for uh, all the services yeah. we provide on, on a different basis, because again, before we were providing services to the investors, now it's to the to the issuer. Sure. Um, and uh, but ultimately, it it all looks and feels very similar to to people. Uh, it's just a, a much more kind of pure services experience now. Let's think about you know what you are anticipating for the second half of the year. Um, that's sort of been that's set in stone now. Uh, you said the deal pipelines. Picking up slightly, uh, what what if you were to put the crystal ball in front of you for a second? What are you anticipating um, in yeah. the next couple months? Well, I don't know where you're getting this crystal ball, but uh, <laughs> I would like to have it. I think uh, one thing we're seeing a lot of, and again post post Algorand, is interest in auctions. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is one of the problems. So that, what's the deal with this? I'm a, yeah. So, um, so Algorand they're actually really cool. Yeah. Right. Explain it to me. <laughs> I have no idea. What, it's what, very cool. So so Algorand. Uh, ran a, a Dutch auction. Oh, that's right. As opposed to a Dutch oven. Not <laughs> to be confused with a Dutch, Dutch oven. Oh, Very goodness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we can cut that. No, so uh, so Algorand ran a Dutch auction. And uh, and the way it worked, and I, I will dramatically oversimplify for the purpose of this audio format here. If we were in front of a whiteboard, we could do much more. But you can check it out. It's all online, obviously. Um, basically, the price started at a certain point, And investors committed to bids uh, at a certain price. So I could say, I'm willing to buy so much at $5 an algo or $2 an algo or $1 an algo. And as the auction went on, the price ticked down until everything, all the orders filled. And so everyone filled at the same price, right? So if there had been a ton of demand at the very top price, it would have cleared at that very top price. That was never the expectation, right? And so it's, it's a price discovery mechanism where the price ticked down over time until there was sufficient demand at that level for all of the algos, 25 million that were being sold, uh, to be sold. And everyone, no matter what you bid above that, cleared at that price. And so that solves what what, what problem that was price discovery. Yeah. Price discovery. Yeah. Right. So so before um again, broken record, new early stage market, how do you value these assets? Mm -hmm. Is a open question, right? And there's a lot of theories on on how you value these these token projects. And what historically has happened is that projects have, for the most part, there's tons of exceptions, but for the most part, they've picked a price and they've said, we're selling you know, tokens at this, at this number, at 76 cents a token, come and buy them. And, that's and that's, they don't know what the response is going to be to them doing that. 
So that's where some unsuccessful sales have come from. That's where sales that and, were. And that probably keeps folks from conducting a sale. Absolutely. Or at least keeps them from doing it, or at least draws it down the, you know, kicks it down the road. And, and you can imagine if I arbitrarily say, and I'm making this number up, I'm charging 76 cents for each token. You could have an unsuccessful sale because uh, people think that's too high and I don't reach my target. You could have a unsuccessful sale in some sense if the sale sells out really quickly and I realize I could have been charging 86 cents per token. But there's a market equilibrium here, right? That where buyers and sellers are, are, are buyers and the seller are willing to meet. And what an auction does, at least in theory and often in practice, is it discovers that price. It finds the optimal price that meets the needs of both the seller and the buyers. Uh, to to for the sale to go through, um, and so the the first Algorand auction ended at two dollars and forty cents per per algo, and you can imagine a world where if they had just done a fixed price thing, they could have priced it at a dollar fifty and missed out on the proceeds from the additional ninety cents per algo, or they could have priced it at five dollars and not been fully subscribed and had an unsuccessful sale, but instead they went out and they said, and I think very intelligently, listen. The market will buy a, buy algos at some price. Let's let them do that, and we will use this this very clever, interesting structure to uh, to let the market determine the price of this offering. It's interesting because it makes me think about whenever there's an issue in the market where we're not, you know, you're not having buyers and sellers come together. You either have regulatory improvements or you have structural market structure improvements that try to uh, remedy that or ameliorate that with what you're talking about sort of reminds me of how we've seen direct listings kind of come into traditional markets to solve the problem of, well, I'm a massive company. I need liquidity that I can tap into the public markets, but I don't necessarily need to raise that much capital or necessarily raise my public profile. And so here you have this mechanism, unlike an IPO where you can go directly to market and here, similarly, you're solving a very big problem, which which I guess now knowing is price discovery for some of these projects. What is 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 that something that you anticipate will like? So for equity markets, the direct listing has now become a sort of you know elixir, so to speak, that can help bring those tech giants in. Is the Dutch auction comparable in as much as that it will bring more projects to market sooner? on the token sale side, or is it just the first in other developments that is going to make this, that will make this market uh, more efficient and and more appealing to issuers? I I would think a little bit of both. I think the biggest piece of this is just the market finding its footing. And we've had this price discovery problem. It's a known problem in the space. And, uh, And seeing, it's one thing to be able to say, oh, an auction would solve this, right? Lots of people have said that over the last couple of years. Of course, when you, you have a price discovery problem, auctions are a good way to solve that. Uh, it's very different in practice to actually see a successful one go through. Because I'll, I'll tell you one downside of an auction, especially one like the one Algorand did, is it's more confusing than selling tokens at a single price. right? It's If I tell you I'm selling my tokens for 76 cents a token, that's very straightforward for investors to understand. Okay, great. I'm buying tokens at 76 cents a token. Here we go. When you do an auction, all of a sudden investors have to figure out the price they're willing to bid at or how much they want to buy at different prices or some other variables. And it's it's more it's hard to understand. And so there's there's always lots of things that seem like theoretical solutions to problems, but are not in practice solutions. I think what Algorand demonstrated is that it's possible to practically run a token sale very successfully in an auction format. And I think that could lead to the overall market changing and people doing a lot more of that uh, instead of the older style of token sales. Uh, but I think it'll also, yeah, lead to to token projects looking at it and saying, 
you know, we weren't comfortable before running a sale because we didn't know how to price this effectively. Let's just do this and let the market decide. What about what about Facebook? Has that moved the needle for any for for your business? Uh, you know, for for our business, I don't know that it has uh, had a meaningful impact. I think in the long run it will, and uh, I'm really excited about the Libra project because I think it's going to expose so many people to crypto that never would have been exposed otherwise or not for a very long time. And it can happen very quickly. And that is just a net positive for the space. So uh, up to this point, I think maybe we've seen a little impact. I think certainly some investors that were less interested in crypto are now more interested because this is really the first intense, genuine move by a massive existing company to move into the space. That's a good signal for a lot of investors. Um, but I think the the biggest effects for us will be in the long run as more and more users. Yeah, so it probably impacts more so the investor side of Coinless platform than it does the issuer side. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's interesting. What about on? So you guys, I don't know if this is still a thing or not, but really kind of promoted airdrops. Um, yeah, what happened to airdrops? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So we we uh, helped run the Definity airdrop, which was a massive success, uh, thirty five million dollars to tens of thousands of users. Yeah. Uh, really great. Um, and and I think airdrop, uh, attention on airdrops really dissipated over the second half of last year and into this year. Um, and I, I think the one reason for that, and there's a lot of reasons, one big reason is that uh, most projects are not ready for an airdrop yet. Right? So, so uh, my favorite analogy for airdrops is, and this is, you know, lots of people have used this, is uh, PayPal. Right, PayPal gave away ten dollars or twenty dollars right. to every user in the yeah. early days mm-hmm. uh, as a way of user acquisition, and then you'd use those ten dollars of PayPal credits in the service, and you'd get addicted, and you'd you know put more money onto the PayPal platform, and that in theory is how airdrops are supposed to work. Here's ten dollars or whatever of a token, use that. Oh wow, this is a really interesting product. I'm going to go put more capital and start to use this more aggressively. The only issue being that there are not a lot of fully usable token projects right now where users and users can actually see significant benefits from using it, right? Most token projects that are liquid today are mostly used from a trading perspective or from a speculative perspective, not from an actual usage perspective. And so from a airdrop, uh, from the airdrop side of things, if the token is mostly used just to trade, giving someone money in that token doesn't necessarily incentivize them to buy more of that token because they're just going to trade it, and then they may make their own investment decisions from there on out. Um, I think as uh, projects start to get more adoption, the consumer-facing projects start to launch and get some early traction, that's where we'll see airdrops start to pick up again. But I do think last year was probably a little bit early in the market for and I think bringing it, bringing it back to Libra, I think that's like one of the targeted ways to bootstrap it, your PayPal example. I mean, like they're going to have to airdrop, in theory, Libra. They have to. Cause to like the how, unbanked. <laughs> they're yeah, to how set up else will the unbanked so, get to yeah, them? Exactly. So I think there are interesting use cases like that. But again, that's a great example because it is consumer facing, yeah. right? And so it, you you need those consumer facing use cases for airdrops to really make sense in my eyes. I think that's where they're going to tie in some of the charities that have gotten involved. NGOs, where, yeah, those ng those NGOs. Well, they'll probably, you know, help get boots on the ground to to, you know, onboard these folks onto Calibra, the wallet, or other wallets if if there's more. At that point, that's why I'm so excited about. It. There's just so few crypto companies that have the ability to do that. That's hell. Can you yeah. imagine, like, you know, going, yeah. and handing out phones, whatever credits, whatever it is, mm-hmm. onboarding people. Crypto companies just are not equipped to do that, and Facebook is, and its partners. Uh, and so that will 
get massive adoption that otherwise would have been way later in the space. Do you think they're going to clear like the regulatory hurdle? I mean, Marcus in DC kept saying ad nauseum, we're not going to do anything without regulatory approval. Um, I, I, I feel like, I, I wonder if that's true. Like, I wonder if there's a certain point where maybe right regulators might be unreasonable at a certain point in the future. And they say, listen, we're trying to do everything we can. We're going to just move forward with this in, in different jurisdictions. And, and if that if the goal is to unbank or rather to bank the unbanked, uh, I mean, not being in the U S isn't that big of a missed opportunity. Right. So I, and, and obviously just speaking for myself here and, and not their team, I, if you look at it, I think absolutely that's what I was route. speaking for their team. You were speaking no, for their just team. Kidding. That is amazing authority. So <laughs> just uh, kidding. The, just kidding, Morgan. You know, going to going to other jurisdictions is an option a lot of crypto projects have done. And you can certainly make the argument that, that is with regulatory approval as long as you then don't do things in the United States that you shouldn't be doing. And so I, I don't think they would do anything that they should not be doing in the United States. Could they go and spend more time overseas and not focus on US users? Absolutely, that's a possibility. I also think there's there's an important note here that not everything needs to be approved from a regulatory perspective, right? If I go and I start a website and I'm selling t-shirts, right? I, there's no approval needed for that. That's just, it's not even a question, right? And so if they can get comfortable with the idea that what they are doing does not require any sort of regulatory approval, they don't need to wait to be blessed because there's no one to bless them. And so that's the question is, are they doing things that require approval? If they are, then there's no doubt in my mind that they will work as hard as they can to get to that and they will not launch until they have that approval. But if they're doing things that don't require regulatory yeah. approval, then there's no need to, to do that waiting. I guess the point I was trying to make is I feel like there is so much animosity around Facebook that there could be a point two years from now where they have every money transmitter license they could possibly have. They have they have, you know, every filing that needs to be submitted submitted. And still at one point, at some point, folks like Maxine Waters are going to say, "Well, it's still Facebook tied to this. Uh, it's not. It's not kosher." Absolutely, but but if I am, and this is then just a, a legal and business risk decision. As far as I'm aware, the government does not have the power to look at a private company and say, "You are not allowed to launch this product." We're not going to tell you why, but you just you, you can't launch it. That's not something the government can do. Now, if, if they come and say this law applies to you and you are not meeting the requirements there. And so you cannot launch. That's a totally different story. But if they get everything they can possibly get, and then a statement comes out saying, Facebook, don't launch, uh, you know, I would have to be looking at that with a, a very, very precise yeah, magnifying glass. And, and, you know, but if, if the, the council and the team and the executives and the board can get comfortable with this idea that that statement is just a desire for them not to launch and not an actual citing of guidance or rulemaking or laws in the United States, that is not an impediment to launching at that point. If they do launch, what do you think that we've argued and debated about this internally here at the block? What are the chances of success, do you think? Uh, it always depends on your definition of success. Um, I think they will get massive adoption if they choose to, to go and launch this. And, and I should add, uh, they've demonstrated so far every indication that they are very committed to this effort. Yeah. That That has to continue, right? If they... Every big company has launched a lot of products that they are not committed to, and those products have failed. Um, if they are very committed to this, they do things the right way, and they put their weight behind it, I think they will absolutely see success in some form. Will it become the number one cryptocurrency in the world forever? I don't know. That's tougher to say, 
but uh, they will certainly get adoption if they really are willing to put their weight behind it. I think to the regulatory point, I mean, we have a lot of growing sentiment that the U.S. is just still too unclear on a lot of things. We have Circle CEO going on tomorrow. Yeah, he's going to be speaking in front of the. This is going to come out like two weeks probably yeah. after that, but. He, he, in past tense, he was there <laughs> and he did a great job from what I remember. No, I, I obviously haven't seen it, but, but do you see that from well, your do, end? Yeah. That's an interesting question. Like there, there seems to be the sentiment within the cryptocurrency space. I mean, we hear it so much from the exchanges, like you mentioned, Jeremy at circle, which runs Poloniex and they're geofencing a token every other day. They've moved to Bermuda. Um, is there anything that is super unclear that if you could just, if you were standing in front of, and I know you engage with the regulators a lot, so maybe you have done this, um, where, where you're basically thinking, all right, this just doesn't make sense. Can you designate, you know, can you define X or define Y for me? There are, there are a number of, of open issues in the U.S. Um, we can talk about a couple of them. Uh, at the same time, just a, a meta point on this, I think, is that this is true in every industry that there are jurisdictions that are more and less permissive and they come with pros and cons. And and one huge con to going somewhere else is that you no longer get access to the US users, right? So if you right. if you go and you say I'm no longer interested in the US, it's too unclear here and certainly I don't think anyone would contest the point that it is more unclear the regulation on cryptocurrency that is more unclear here in the US than it is in certain other jurisdictions. That is unequivocally true, but at the same time, the U.S. is a massive market, and there are regulators that have a mandate to protect U.S. investors. And the reason that's so powerful is that the U.S. investor base is it's, represents a lot of people and a lot of capital. And you have to be willing to forego that if you're going to go elsewhere. And so that's, there's always this set of trade-offs you have to be making. It's not as easy as just saying uh, the U.S. has a more stringent or less clear regime. I'm going to go somewhere that's more clear. That comes with downsides, too. Um, Within that, I think, and at, you know, without trying to get too in the weeds here, one big point that keeps coming up uh, around regulation of cryptocurrency. Definitely get in the weeds. <laughs> we can get in the weeds then, is um, the applicability and definition of custody rules. So the U.S. Yep. has a lot, of, uh, a lot of regulations around what it means to hold custody of assets, especially securities. Be a qualified custodian. To be a qualified custodian. And, and there's a whole bunch of rules here. One big one that you look at is one called 15C33 around the definition of, of what it is to, to have custody of something and, and to fill that role. And, uh, and thus far, and the SEC said this in their statement they released a few weeks ago, there is not firm definition on that yet. Uh, and so that's a big question that just needs to be answered for a lot of these broker-dealers and ATSs and other entities to, to uh, be able to operate effectively in this space. Um, and then separate from that, the SEC has continued to make strides on this, but uh, it feels like kind of the ever-present question in the U.S. is, what, where is the line between something being a security and a non-security uh, in terms of tokens? And it, it seems clear at this point that it's possible for tokens to be securities. It's possible for them to be non-securities. Um, clearly, there has to be a line between those two somewhere. And, uh, and I think there, there hasn't been uh, kind of fast, hard and fast uh, rulemaking or guidance on exactly where that line is. The SEC continued to put out materials about that and different thoughts on different angles, but nothing really firm. Has that, have either of those two things served as an impediment to Coinless launching a new product or operating a certain way? I know you guys, even from when we first spoke back in 2017 for the first time, had ambitions to create a secondary marketplace or an ATS. Do the questions of custody or, or uh, what exactly what exactly these assets are, whether the securities or not, 
is that an impediment to going down that route? It's absolutely a discussion we're having with the regulators. And, and yet, for any business that fits into those issues, uh, you're going to run into that until those issues are resolved. So we certainly had those conversations. Um, there are also, uh, you know, we kind of firmly put this, and this fits into our operating model that I was talking about earlier. We firmly put all of this on ourselves, right? It is our responsibility to execute on all of this, and execution includes uh, understanding and and eliciting regulation, rulemaking, and guidance that allows us to operate in the way that we want to operate. Um, and so, anything that that isn't yet clear or is impeding our business, that's that's on us as a, a part of the execution sure, that we sure. have to do on the legal and regulatory side. But yeah, to your to your question directly, um, absolutely. Uh, questions around what it means to uh, have custody of a digital asset and maintain that custody in a, in a legal and regulatory sense uh, is a question that we are wrestling with for the products that we offer and want to offer. With that said, though, I mean, I would say the majority of your raise or your offerings have been open to U.S. investors or? That's right. And and uh, generally, and not every single one, but generally under um, the, the Reg D exemption mm. for securities offerings, which uh, allows you to sell, to generally solicit, um, so sell and alert people to the fact that you are, are selling a security um, uh, to accredited investors. Got it. Okay. So that's one of the things we do for all these offerings, or most of them, again, is uh, verify the accreditation status of the investors, so making sure they have a certain net worth or, or income level. So they found a way to make it work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You got to find a way to make it work. That's <laughs> and, and that's it. You know, we we want to serve U.S. investors and U.S. issuers, and so we'll find a way to make it work. Uh, sometimes that comes with restrictions. Are you trying to figure out how you can expand? The platform to reach non-accredited investors, if if it if you can figure out a way to make it work, <laughs> absolutely. So you know, one one example of that, uh, I'll give you two examples of that. Actually, one is uh, the Blockstack yeah. Reg A offering, which we've helped with, um, and and that offering is is open to non-accredited investors under the rules of, of Reg A. Uh, so that's one way. And then separately, the Algorand sale was also available to non-accredited investors um, because they are a non-U.S. entity and they were selling to non-U.S. investors. So they, they were able to uh, avoid that U.S. regulatory regime in that sense. We provided the technical services for that. So there are ways for us to serve non-accredited investors. Uh, it just so happens that it's not, again, you know, to go back to the example, not the same as us opening up a T-shirt store and, and selling things online. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, do you, um, what else are you like, you know, what other trends are, are exciting you in the space, whether they're a tailwind for CoinList or not, that you think is fascinating that people might not have picked up on yet? You know, this is uh, maybe the most obvious trend, but perhaps not as obvious in how it relates to us. I got into this space originally because of uh, Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is back in 2012, 2013, um, when I went and started the Stanford Bitcoin group with, with a bunch of other folks and led by um, our professor at the time, Balju Srinivasan, who then mm-hmm. you know, started Earn and, and sold it to Coinbase and served as Coinbase CTO. And, uh, and for a long time, that asset has been just really exciting to me. And We've seen, uh, you know, obviously, if you look at the charts, a big surge in Bitcoin's values. People recognize that over the past six months or so. Um, and I just think that buoys the space. It is, people forget this. It, it sounds almost silly to say that, but people forget, you know, Bitcoin is the single biggest digital uh, crypto asset that is out there. And so every time we see that market go, um, we say that it's just a really good sign for the space as a whole. And it maybe speaks to a broader point that uh, from the coinless perspective, we're building this business for the long term. And with the assumption that the digital asset market is going to be much bigger than it is today, right? Right now, there is you know, a ceiling on how much we can do because the digital asset market is reasonably small compared to lots mm-hmm. of other markets. And so for us, it's all about 
what can we do to grow the pie, right? How can the space get bigger? Uh, and anything, whether or not it's directly related to us, uh, that grows the space we see as a win. So when things like Bitcoin do well, you know, eventually when things like tokenized assets and security tokens do well, um, whether or not we have our hands in those pots, uh, growing the crypto space is what will enable us to grow really big. And, and we think every company should have that mentality. And the last thing I'll mention there is just that uh, this space is so positive sum right now as a result of that fact. All these companies in the space should know that yeah, we can compete for market share with each other and fight back and forth over percentage points now, but those hopefully will pale in comparison to the size of percentage points 5, 10, 15, 20 do years you from now. Do you see, uh, to that point, do you see firms who are somewhat in your business coming together, thinking about how we can address some of these regulatory uncertainties or other problems facing? Constantly. This similar? is one of the things I love about this space is – yeah, whether or not someone's a competitor or quasi-competitor, totally unrelated to what you are doing, everyone knows, accepts this fact that mm -hmm. crypto is positive sum. We yeah. all want this space to win. Let's work together. So there, you know, to your to the question of the regulatory side of things, constantly having meetings uh, in DC with a bunch of other crypto people from different companies and different backgrounds, uh, because that united front tells a way more compelling story. And uh, and I think it, it's important that as the space grows and, and the stakes get higher, uh, we keep that mentality for, for as long as possible. Cause I think that's what's enabled the space to get where it is today. Well, Andy, we appreciate you coming on Dutch auctions, the regulatory landscape, your thoughts on Libra. Thank you so much for the wide ranging conversation, Ryan. Thank you for, for being the co-host. What would I do without you? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer -peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code it's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play.
All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.